Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets done. I'm Avi Stamen, your new co-host of Scholarly Communication, alongside Daniel. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate most of my time to my lovely family, mountain biking, and running my company, Academic Language Experts. At Academic Language Experts, we help academic scholars, researchers, and science professionals with translation, editing, writing, and publication support for their research. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine Cox. A quick word about Catherine. Uh, Catherine is a 20-year veteran of scholarly publishing and is the assistant director and editor-in-chief at Michigan State University Press. She acquires in Native American history and literature, rhetoric and communications, environmental studies of the Great Lakes region, mimetic studies, U.S. history, and Michigan history and culture, among other areas. Sounds like you need an assistant there, Catherine. She's also <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> she's also the author of two scholarly histories, uh, "Doing the Town," published by the University of California Press in two thousand and one, and "Tropical Whites," published by the University of Pen- Pennsylvania Press in two thousand thirteen. She's also active in the Association of University Presses um, and has established the Feeding the Elephant Forum on HNet, which is a name that I absolutely love, and we will discuss a little bit later on. Um, so. Catherine, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's anytime you want to come on. Happy to have you. Um, You have so much insight into the world of scholarly publishing. I think we could probably do a few sessions. Uh, But let's let's start out uh, humble and and let's start um, by maybe you could just tell us a little bit about um, how, about yourself, but specifically in the context of how you got into the world of acquisitions editing. I don't know if there are any five-year-olds that dream of being an acquisitions <laughs> editor one day, but, but it is something that the people I've spoken to are quite p- passionate about. So maybe tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, no, I am like most people uh, in scholarly publishing. I came in backwards. I didn't set out uh, to be an acquisitions editor, uh, much less do anything in scholarly publishing. Um, I started out getting a PhD in history um, and I still love researching and writing history, although I don't really do it anymore. Um, And then I found after I got my PhD that I didn't really want to teach, um, that that I wasn't well suited for it. So I started looking for other options. um, And through a number of lucky uh, occurrences, I ended up uh, as the managing editor actually at a small academic press that's part of a a nonprofit organization that supports work in anthropology, archaeology, and Native American art. Um, And that was my introduction to the field. Um, As that was, as I said, it's a very small press. So I also did some acquisitions work. um, And that's where I learned that I really just love acquisitions. Um, Basically, I love talking to people about their research. I love hearing about the fascinating questions that people have asked and and how they figure out to pursue them. And I really enjoy the teamwork of publishing, of bringing people's scholarship um, to fruition to a beautiful printed book. So from that position, I jumped to the University of Iowa Press. Um, I was in acquisitions there for about five years, spent a year at the University of Washington Press, and now I'm at Michigan State University Press. Brilliant. Fantastic. And maybe you could, for those who aren't previously familiar, um, 
you know, I always found I always find that acquisitions editor is such a is such an inappropriate term because it sounds like you're like a purchaser for you know for for a big company. It's really not what acquisitions. I mean, you I guess I guess there is an element of that, but maybe you could just walk us through kind of what it means to be an acquisitions editor. You know, what does your day to day look like, and and yeah, what what you know. Yeah, how do you spend your time? Sure. Um, yeah, it's. I do think of acquisitions actually as as pretty accurate. Uh, in the UK, of course, they say commissioning, which might be a more polite term uh, for it. Um, I actually I remember meeting with it was a group of people around it, an author, a potential author, um, and one of them was an executive at a um, lighting products firm, <laughs> and he had a great deal of trouble understanding what it was that I did until he finally said, "Oh." Oh, you're the business development person. I said, yes, that's what I do. Um, so acquisitions editors are the people who go out looking for projects for a press to publish. Um, we're the people who are, you know, scanning conference programs and looking at academic journals. We're the people who are keeping our eye on just what are the trends in the fields of scholarships that we of scholarship that we acquire in. And we're reaching out to people who are doing research in those areas. Um, I'm just now preparing for my spring conferences. I'll be sending out emails to people who are presenting papers, um, you know, and I subscribe to any number of news lists of newsletters in fields that I'm interested in. Just keep track of who's writing what. Um, and then I, I reach out to people um, and say, are you working on a book project? Would you be interested in working with us? Um, so in addition to that, uh, you know, day to day, it's a lot like, <laughs> I think the office jobs that many of us have, I answer emails and I go to meetings. <laughs> um, but those are all, you know, in service of developing projects, working with authors, working with my series editors, uh, to bring in projects as well. I spend a good bit I... of time. Go ahead. No, no, please finish, finish your thought. Okay. I, I do actually yeah. spend time reading book proposals, reading manuscripts, evaluating them. I know that for many people, they think that's what we spend most of our time doing. And I think most of us would like to spend most of our time doing that. Um, but we do spend a lot of time in correspondence, I think, letting people know where things are, moving tasks forward, things like that. And then on the other end, once we have a project, a final manuscript actually in-house, it's the acquisitions editors who coordinate preparing that manuscript for production and marketing. Got it. And would it be accurate? You you mentioned you know how you go out and and sort of actively contact and pursue uh, projects or scholars who you think have interesting research. Um, but is it also a two way street? Do you also receive uh, applications or submissions from authors who are interested who think they'd be relevant for you know your series or for the press in general? Absolutely. Yeah. And we love to get those. So bring them on. Um, you can start with just a query email, just saying, this is what I'm working on. Would this be appropriate? Or I think it's a good fit. Um, or you can go ahead and send a full proposal. Um, either one is completely fine. Um, so, you know, but I do advise people take a look at the website um, of any press that you're considering and make sure that your project is a good fit. Um, most of us specialize, especially small presses like Michigan State University Press. We don't publish everything. So if you take a look at our website and your project doesn't fall within the areas that we acquire, you should be looking for a press that does publish in your area. They can do a lot better job getting it out to the people who most want to read your work. Yeah, it's. I'm glad you mentioned about 
you know, um, I was having a discussion the other day with one of my colleagues and they asked me, well, should be, should our authors be writing letters first or should they be sending full proposals? And we had a bit of a back and forth. So it's nice to hear you say that they can do either. My recommendation was to send a letter just because um, a, I don't know if, if authors always realize the level of, of interaction um, that they're going to have with their editors. And I always feel like it's good to get off on a personal start and to, you know, introduce yourself as a person before you start pitching your project. Um, so I always encourage authors to kind of send a, so long as the cover letter will be appropriate and, 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 you know, uh, and, and friendly, I always think that that's like a nice way, you know, much like any other relationship, but I guess, I guess it can be done either way. So. Yeah. And I mean, I agree with you, you know, your, the relationship between editor and author is going to be personal. Um, and so it's always great to, to get off on a, a sort of personal professional start, let people know who you are. Um, you know, I do try as an editor to be a responsive, good colleague to my authors. I want them to feel like, I want them to know the truth, which is that we care about their project and that we want this relationship to be cordial and supportive all the way through. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think that already doing that actually probably differentiates you from from maybe some of the other um, presses that, 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 you know, maybe, maybe have, uh, you know, are, are overwhelmed. Now, um, I, so I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about, um, specifically at Michigan State, um, what are the areas of interest, what sort of, you know, what trends are you seeing uh, in the industry? And, and I just want to add one more point, which is that, you know, when I speak with authors, oftentimes I think they, they tend to think of maybe certain presses that, you know, have uh, the largest presence or the lar- largest market share and think that that's the best fit for them. Um, and part of my conversations with them is explaining that, well, actually what you're interested in is best fit and, and is and is a publisher that's going to be excited about your project and know how to distribute your project. You know, if you have a very big publisher, but they don't know what to do with it, that doesn't necessarily help. So anyway, I'm, I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit about kind of what it is that makes Michigan State unique and what kinds of projects um, really get you excited. Sure. Yeah. And of course, as somebody who works and has always worked at small presses, um, I do encourage people to to look beyond the obvious. Um, and like you said, I mean, fit is really the important thing. So Michigan State University Press, uh, I'm a historian, so I like to start at the beginning. Um, it was established in its current form in 1947. It was part of a wave of university presses set up in, in the post-World War II expansion of higher ed in the United States. So Um, We publish extensively in African and African diaspora studies, Native American studies, uh, rhetoric and communications, environmental studies, particularly the Great Lakes, uh, mimetic studies, U.S. history, animal studies. Uh, We've got a Latino studies series. Um, We have a pretty wide range. Um, It's fairly eclectic. Um, But, you know, these are areas that we're particularly well known in um, and, and are able to support Uh, work in these fields effectively. Um, So I would particularly point out um, as one of our strengths, our Native American Studies list was founded by a previous editor um, who has worked really closely with Native scholars and Native communities and nations in the Great Lakes area in particular, as well as more broadly. Um, So that's that's a series where we've really made an effort to make sure that it is... um, guided by and for uh, Native scholars um, and 
We do a lot of history and literature in that series. Um, we're particularly well known um, in rhetoric, uh, particularly a sort of public address. And we've been expanding recently um, in that area and doing more uh, on the other side of that field, on the communication side, with a really interesting series uh, that I'm particularly proud of with Stephen Hartnett at the University of Colorado, Denver, on US-China um, related communications um, in, as he says, the age of globalization. Um, so another series I would just point to is one that I'm particularly proud of is our environmental studies of the Great Lakes, um, which we're just building up to now. We've, we've published in that area for a long time and now we're really in a focus uh, and develop that list uh, more. Yeah, I think there's something nice to the fact that you're you're actually focusing on an area which impacts your local region. I don't know if that, I don't know if every press always has the opportunity to actually have a direct impact on, you know, what they pass by maybe on their drive on the way home. And I think that's something, something that's nice, maybe that you, you have the opportunity to do. I, I think that's actually, it's one of the key missions of a public university, a press at a public university, like we are um, serving the region, um, publishing as many people know, is highly centralized. And in the United States, most of the big publishers are in New York. And of course, they're serving national and international readerships. Um, and part of the mission of a university press is to serve scholars, of course. There are niche markets there um, that are too small for the big publishers to serve. Um, but also the people of our local region, you know, especially sort of history, culture, politics um, of Michigan and the Great Lakes. You know, a big commercial publisher is going to look at that and say the market's too small. Um, but we can look at it as a nonprofit mission driven press and say, you know, this is the place that we are. And, you know, we're deeply concerned with the, the success and welfare of the people in this region. I think that's great. Uh, now, I'm sure you have a lot of, you know, books that, you know, that you're very proud of and that you worked hard on. Is there something that came out recently? I think it may, may help the audience to hear about, you know, maybe one particular book that you can tell us about just to get sort of a feel for, you know, exactly what it is that that really is kind of hones in or is a good maybe case study of something that you've published that you're particularly proud of? Well, it's always hard to choose among your books. You're always proud of everything <laughs> of that you course. do. Um, I would say uh, Lynn Heasley, who's a professor of history at Western Michigan, uh, recently published a really beautiful set of essays on, it's called Accidental Reef, um, on the, the sort of efforts, the environmental recovery of the Great Lakes, both the sort of impact of industrialization and pollution and urbanization on the lakes, and the, the quirky and interesting ways in which the lakes are rebounding, um, you know, with the dedicated effort of many activists as well. Uh, but it's just a beautiful book. You know, a lot, it's it's very scholarly and well-grounded uh, in the scholarship, but it's also just beautifully written with a wonderful sense of humor um, and beautifully illustrated with some um, lovely woodcut prints as well. So if you're at all interested in environmental issues, um, I, even if, you know, of any kind, I highly recommend that uh, Lynn's book, just a really wonderful book. So. Great. That's, that that's fantastic. I think that like really kind of, you know, shows how, how, if you're, you know, open to, you know, scholars who are really doing important research that, that has an impact on the public and you're willing to listen to them, you can actually, you know, produce books that really have value well beyond the walls of, of, of academia. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's my hope with all my books. Um, but of course, some make that leap more successfully than others. Of course. Now, I, I understand that you, um, you know, are one of the acquisitions editors who's involved in, um, you know, kind of promoting or advancing multi multimedia publication. And I was hoping you could kind of tell us a little bit more about what that means and maybe where you see multimedia publication, where do you see it taking us? You know, we're sort of kind of used to the the book format. Are there other formats that you've experimented with or you've seen other scholars or other publishers or your own publisher experiment with that you think sort of give us a window into what's coming and what we should be expecting over the next few decades? Yeah. So um, I would say in this space, um, I've always been a wannabe, Um, you know, digital multimedia. I think it's really important. And we see scholars, humanity scholars, really building fascinating work in that area. Um, But university presses are just beginning to figure out how to support that work. Um, It's not, it's very different in terms of, um, production and workflow from a a book or a journal. Um, And it also doesn't fit into our existing sales or subscription models. You know, and that's the, 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 you know, the digital, digital realm broadly, it, it's been, you know, 30 years of trying to figure out what's the business model to support uh, this kind of work. So there's really exciting work going on. Um, some universities supporting it. There's a pro, you know a program at Brown supporting faculty work. Stanford has a very vigorous um, digital publications process, and there are now some platforms um, that have been created to support digital multimedia work. Manifold, Fulcrum are the ones that come to mind. Raven Space um, up at UBC. We, MSU Press, we're in the position of beginning to dip our toe in this area. Um, So my colleague, Caitlin Tyler Richard, came on with us in the fall of 2020. She's a digital humanist herself. And so she is reaching out uh, to scholars uh, who are working in that area and we're beginning to develop those projects. So we are still in the beginning stages of figuring out platforms and things like that. But I think it's really important because that's where scholars are going um, and because this kind of work can really give us exciting options for how to think about the work that we do, how to put it together, and how to reach broader audiences. Um, and I think Raven Space, uh, which is a, a project of UBC Press uh, with partner a number of different partners, um, that's specializing in supporting work that is both scholarly and by and for Native communities. So it offers a really interesting model for work that serves the needs and concerns of Native communities and also produces really amazing scholarship um, as well. So um, lots of really interesting developments there. That's that's really interesting. I'm trying to get a better sense of the multimedia component. Does that mean, are we talking video? Are we talking social? Are we talking digitized content? Like what sort, or all of the above, you know? I'm curious, like what this actually looks like. Yeah, I think we all are, (laughs) Um, you know, to a to a significant degree. It really depends on, you know, the scholar who's bringing the project to you and what kind of vision they have. Um, So, you know, coming out of the Brown program that I mentioned, there's this wonderful project that uh, ended up being published by the University of Virginia Press called Furnace and Fugue. 
um, which took this, oh, I'm going to forget the specific dates on it, but it's an alchemy, alchemy text from um, Europe um, that was originally written and imagined as a set of texts, a set of pieces of music, um, and then some sort of allegorical symbols. And so the scholars working on it created a multimedia performance, essentially a performance of this work, including um, you know, recordings of people singing the music and, and things like that. So that's where I think the multimedia is really exciting is that it can actually bring the source material that scholars are working with and make it available um, in a way that, you know, a printed book, you can reproduce printed sources, but it, you know, you can't do music or video or, or things. Like, and, you know, there are limitations on the amount of art you can reproduce and things like that. Um, another really exciting project, very different from that, that I would point to also here at MSU, um, not well, sort of distantly connected to the press in that we're talking to them about some spinoff projects is Matrix and the Enslaved Project. Um, and this is Enslaved is a project to create essentially a digital hub for accessing the many projects out there about the Atlantic slave trade um, and really creating a worldwide um, access to worldwide research around this topic um, so that we get a much more um, granular and networked understanding of what was a widespread network um, with a particular focus on restoring the humanity to the people who were trafficked in that trade and, and identifying them as individuals um, to a great extent. And that I think is a really exciting way of that the digital can really enhance the scale and create networks of research that are larger than any single project. It's really, it's really fascinating because it really sort of like, it didn't dawn on me until now that we're really trying to turn on its head how we look at research. There's something about a book. One time a publisher told me that they, they think of a book as a living organism. And I really appreciated that um, because, you know, it's sort of like, don't think of it once it's printed, it's finished. But in truth, it's hard because once you do print a book, it is sort of finished. And, you know, you may have come out with another edition. You may have addendums. You may have retractions even. But the book is out. Um and there's something, I guess, exciting maybe about the dynamic um, nature of this content. Like you said, it's not just it, when, a, when, a, when a book is published, right? So it may create conversation, but the book is, is finite. Whereas here, it's sort of like inviting sort of engagement and conversation and collaboration in a way that maybe the traditional publishing um, doesn't do as naturally. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I, I would push back against that book as living organism to some extent, because I think one of the great virtues and value of a printed book is that it is a stable sort of statement of, you know, culmination of a, of a project in a way that I think is actually very valuable. And I think, you know, people should say when they make a decision about how they want to publish or how, how they want to make their work public to think about the format in terms of, do I want something that's going to be a kind of long-term encapsulation of my research or, and it doesn't have to be an, or it can be both. Do I want something that, as you say, is more dynamic and interactive. And I know, for example, the manifold platform was designed to enhance that kind of um, ongoing commentary. You know, you can create shared platforms where people can um, 
comment and respond to each other as they respond to the work and things like that. So, you know, I think there are real strengths and value to all of these different platforms. And the exciting thing is about trying to, I think, imagine the integration or networking of all of these different formats so that, you know, there's a print version that achieves certain goals and then there's a dynamic um, interactive version that may be that may, may offer different paths to different people who are coming to experience it in different ways. And there's a lot of digital projects too that invite people to submit their own work. Um, they essentially operate as kind of um, online museum slash archives where you know members of the public can contribute um, pieces of their own history. Um, we did a, a book at, at Iowa about the commemoration of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire in 1913, which was this horrible industrial accident, which a, a factory burned down and well over a hundred workers were killed. And on the hundredth anniversary, the commemoration of this, one of, there were many things that happened, including the book that we published at Iowa. Um, but another thing was that they, had this website where people could upload pictures of their ancestors who had died in that fire or letters or memorabilia, things like that. Wow. That's really interesting. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, I think it's there that that's another really good point is that academic, one way to, you know, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but one way to extend academia beyond the walls of academia is actually inviting the the general public to contribute and to be a part of the conversation Um, and to not assume that, you know, the researchers hold all the information, although, you know, they are especially trained to, 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 to analyze it, you know, to, to be able to, to, you know, work collaboratively. Yeah. Another area of scholarship that I've been lucky enough to get involved in is the whole um, realm of publicly engaged humanities um, and that is an approach to humanity scholarship that is all about engaging with with communities on a, a partnership basis, not a, I am coming to you to impart great wisdom, but rather let's work together to achieve a set of goals or, you know, pursue long term um, aims of, you know, improving community health or enhancing communication between different groups, things like that. And there's a lot of fascinating work going on there of um, developing projects that are really in service um, to those communities and breaking down the walls between sort of specialized scholarship in the humanities and um, community groups. So I can go on about that forever, but I won't. <laughs> this is probably not the right forum. Well, <laughs> so I, I want, I, I would love to, but I, I, but there are a few things that are really interesting to me that I wanted to ask you about. And um, okay. first of all, I wanted to ask you about the Association of University Presses. Um, and there may be some listeners who are familiar previously, there may be some who are not. So maybe you could just give us a little bit of background about what the Association of University Presses, uh, what it is and who, and who they are, um, and your role within that. Um, yeah, that'll get us started. Sure. So the Association of University Presses is a trade association. It's a membership organization of university presses. Um, it started out uh, focused on North America, so mainly Canadian and U.S. presses. Um, and then in the past 10 years or so has really expanded beyond that. Um, so it's open to university presses around the world. Um, and it's, you know, as I said, it's a trade association, a membership organization, and um, <laughs> the different university presses, um, there's a small uh, paid staff 
And then for the most part, the community, the the committee work and and that kind of thing is done on a volunteer basis by um, members of university presses. So um, AU Presses has a number of different committees uh, dealing with a number of different issues. We have sort of standing committees that reflect, you know, there's an editorial design and production committee for people who are doing that work. Uh, There's a marketing committee, a business committee, um, and then there are more topical committees addressing things like open access, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, things like that. And currently, um, I'm serving as our fac- as the chair of the faculty outreach committee. And the aim of that committee is really to um, engage with the people who are our our main constituents, authors, scholars, um, and make a really concerted effort to provide information to them about university presses, about publishing with us, how the, how the process works. Um, There are, I don't know how many members now, something like 150 members of AU presses um, and members are the presses, not individuals. Um, And, you know, there are many, many colleges and universities out there where they don't, there is not a local press. Um, and so it's relatively harder for those scholars to get information about publishing. So one of the big goals of the faculty outreach committee is to develop tools and methods for providing that information. So it's a lot easier for people to learn about what university presses do um, and how they authors um, can actually work with us to publish their work either, you know, through journal articles or books or multimedia projects. Yeah. So that, that, that really brings me to, um, to the website that you, that you helped um, create, which I just love, which is called Ask UP, which is essentially, I guess, a forum for um, authors to be able to ask questions to university publishers and get real answers. Um, I just, I just took like a few of the blogs that I saw that are up now uh, there's a blog on who can be published by university press. Has the pandemic changed how first time book authors can approach editors? How can I propose and publish an edited volume? These are questions that I know are really critical because I get them on, <laughs> on a daily basis and I'm not a, I don't publish, uh, you know, we provide author services, but I know that these are questions that authors are dealing with. So I definitely think that, uh, you know, you're hitting on an important an important point. Um, I do think that publishers do their best to try and make information available to authors, but sometimes it could be intimidating or confusing, or maybe because there are different publishers with different sort of you know requirements, it can be a bit overwhelming. So maybe tell us a little bit about Ask UP, and you know if someone does have a question, do they can they go on the website and ask? How does that work? Right. So anyone can access the website. Um, It was the first project of the Faculty Outreach Committee, which is about four or five years old at this point. Um, And, you know, the goal is just to have a living resource out there um, so that when people have questions, maybe you feel shy, you don't want to approach an acquisitions editor, you can go to this website, poke around, see if you can get your questions answered. We've got quite a bit of content up there already. It's separated into general categories. Um, so you can go to the homepage. There are some, you know, questions featured there, but there's also a menu on the right-hand side that can help you drill down into some of that content. Uh, the search also works pretty well. I've used it myself. So it's worth poking around to see if your your particular question has already been answered. Um, but we are also actively developing content. Um, so there are a couple of ways that's happening. There is a portal on the site where you can put in your question. Um, 
I do want to emphasize to people that this is not the way you're going to find the publisher for your next book or article. It's not meant to be a kind of, um, you know, automated literary agent. It's really supposed to be a general information source about university press publishing. Um, but we welcome all kinds of questions. You know, you just listed some Avi that uh, other people have put in. Um, so, you know, whatever question about university press publishing is on your mind at the moment, feel free to, to go over to the ask UP portal and put it in there. Um, the other way we develop content is, you know, by asking our colleagues. So the initial content for the website was developed by AU Press's committee members. You know, the, I wasn't on the committee at that time, but when they were starting the website, they put out a call to all of the different AU Press's committees and said, you know, please generate four or five pieces of content. What are the common questions that you get asked? What are sort of the FAQs that you think people are going to want to have answers to? Um, and we continue to generate those. So it's a it's an AU Press's wide supported site. Every quarter of the year, we have a different host. A different university press actually hosts the site, um, solicits input, um, develops some answers, and that content is then added every quarter to the site. So the current host is Bristol University Press in the UK. Um, upcoming, the University of Virginia Press is going to host, and Rutgers University is actually is slated for the summer quarter as well. So it's a, it's a dynamic source. Keep looking, keep coming back. I saw something recently on University of South Carolina. Maybe that was the last. Uh, yes, they were right before. Yeah, right before Bristol. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's great because I think that sort of, first of all, it splits up the work among the different presses that it's, you know, everyone kind of takes a shift. But also I'm sure that every press kind of has their own perspective. As much as you do work together, you know, every press has their unique perspective that they can add. Um, and, and, and while you're, while you're, you're, you're definitely correct, um, that it's not a place to go and start pitching. Um, I do find there, there is a, um, a resource on the site, uh, with sort of a, a breakdown of which publishers are interested in which areas, which I find really helpful, um, for authors and try to direct them there as much as possible. So if you're, you know, starting out and you're like, I have no idea where I should be considering. So obviously the first tip I always give is look at your own bibliography right, and see like who you're quoting and see where people are publishing their works. But beyond that, um, I do recommend going to the Ask UP site and just seeing, you know, kind of which publishers are saying this is something I'm currently interested in and make sure it's current because sometimes publishers may have published a certain series in the 90s or in the early 2000s that was interesting to them. But since then, they've kind of gone in different directions. So. Yeah, that subject area grid is a wonderful resource. Um, it is updated regularly, so people can take a look at that. But definitely, once you've done that, take a look at those, you know, make yourself a list of, of publishers that seem relevant. Go look at their websites. And you definitely want to identify which editor acquires in your area and uh, approach that person personally if possible. Got it. Brilliant. Um, okay, I want to move on to the last uh, your last hat, and this is, uh, you probably have more hats. I don't even know all the hats that you wear, <laughs> but I do know that you must you must not sleep too often uh, with all this work you do. And uh, maybe this is my favorite, which is um, the Feeding the Elephant Forum. Um, and this is a forum on HNET, but I wouldn't call it your typical HNET forum for those who are familiar with HNET. Um, you know, it's usually a way for scholars within a certain field uh, to be able to communicate and ask questions and, and share share ideas and research. Um, the Feeding the Elephant is similar but different. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, what it is and how it came about and what information um, either scholars or other publishing colleagues might be able to find there. 
Sure. So feeding the elephant is an HNET forum, but it's not, you know, as Abby said, it's, it's not, you know, for announcements and book reviews and things like that. Um, it's essentially a blog. Um, and I co-founded it with Yelena Kalinske, who's vice president at HNET. Uh, in 2019, we started publishing. And my goal is really to provide a place where um, publishers, scholars, and librarians can talk about scholarly communications together. Um, all of us are really you know, scholarly communications is so important to all of us, but in different ways. Um, and I feel like often those conversations happen in separate silos when, in fact, the changes that are happening right now and, and they're major um, are affecting all of us. Um, so my hope was really to provide a place where we could talk about um, that ecosystem and our different places in it and build alliances to in, in the process of transforming it um, for the future. And I was inspired to a considerable degree by the Scholarly Kitchen blog. Um, that's a, a publishing blog, but it really focuses on STEM journal publishing. Um, I'm on the humanities, social sciences, arts book side. So I wanted something that would focus on the issues that are specific to that uh, set of publishers as well. So, you know, we started small um, and and with a, a modest little blog, we try to publish weekly. Um, and it's really just been uh, really fun. Um, so Yelena and I started out as co-editors and Don Durante, the, the editor-in-chief at Texas, uh, joined us about a year later um, and we're the, the current editorial collective. And we do welcome contributions. If you have something to say about scholarly communications, we would uh, love to hear from you. Can you give us like an example of maybe a, you know, post the, that, that was put up there that really kind of, you know, in brought about certain discussion or you found particularly interesting that you could share? Yeah, I will name a couple. So our all-time top hit uh, getter, so to speak, is uh, Jenny Tan, who's an acquisitions editor at the University of Pennsylvania Press, uh, wrote a piece on the phrase that scholars often use in their writing, I argue that. Um, basically giving people advice on how to use that phrase effectively and how to avoid overusing or misusing it. Um, and that was very popular. Um, we just uh, republished a piece by Walter Biggins, also at the University of Pennsylvania Press, about um, using your own previously published work uh, in a new work. Um, so we do, and that's a, a, a kind of column that we call writing, uh, working with your editor. Uh, actually, no, we... Sorry, it's, those are sort of writing pieces. That's one focus of what we do. We also have a separate column called Working with Your Editor, um, which are about press processes. So once you send in your manuscript to a publisher, what should you expect? What are the next steps? How to, how to handle those steps effectively? Um, another post that got um, a fair amount of attention, I did a kind of summing up post about the state of open access in humanities and social science monographs. Um, and that last that was last fall, last summer, um, mostly in response to a couple of big sort of summing up meetings. Uh, one was the Open Access Scholarly Publishing Association had a meeting where there was a lot of sort of conversation of the state of the a state of play, and then the Toward an Open Access an Open Monograph Ecosystem, the Tome Initiative, um, had a, a a big sort of evaluating this, the state of play uh, conference last summer as well. So I just did a kind of survey of 
some of the initiatives that were profiled at those meetings um, and outlined some of the issues that advocates are really facing at this point. And that did get a good bit of attention because I think that is one of the transformative forces uh, in scholarly communications right now. And there are just a lot of unanswered questions and big issues around funding and equity and access. Yeah. Interesting. All right. You've given me a few, a few ideas for, for pitches uh, that may be coming your way in the near future. Um, Cause I think that's, it's a really interesting, really interesting form. I also always find it, I think there's a deep psychology to which posts, you know, tend to do better or worse. I, I had a conversation with, um, with Bruce Wilson, who's the editor in chief of the conversation. Um, and he told me that the most popular post that they ever had on their website was about the science behind the five second rule and whether you're allowed to eat something that fell on the floor. You know, so it's like, you, you know, you, you think you put, you think, you know, you know, what's important. And then you realize, you know, what, 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 uh, you know, I don't know if it means it's important because it gets a lot of clicks, but, but I, it does t- tell us something about what people are thinking about and what they're interested in. So uh, your topics are a I little bit more grounded, but, but there you go. Yes. It's, it's uh, apparently yeah, we are not, a, we are not averse. We are not averse to humor either. So there you on. go. Brilliant. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Catherine, it's been a real pleasure um, chatting with you. Um, I know that I've learned a lot from, you know, just uh, this this hour that we've had together. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more that we could discuss, but I want to let you uh, get get to your day and to your uh, re- hopefully have the you know, you'll have the opportunity to read a few manuscripts today and not just uh, push, you know, push, push projects forward. Um, so, you know, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking the time this morning. Uh, we appreciate having you. And um, if someone does want to you know, I assume that they can find Feeding the Elephant and Ask UP quite easily um, by Google. If someone wants to reach out, has a question for you or wants to connect, is there, you know, a good way to connect with you? Sure. So thanks again for having me. It's been a pleasure. I love talking about scholarly publishing. Um, you can reach me at my email address is the best one. C A M C A T at msu.edu is the best way to reach me. Uh, That is on the MSU Press website. So msupress.org, also a good way to find me. And again, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Catherine. Um, I really enjoyed chatting with you. And uh, yeah, we'll continue this conversation at a later date. I hope so. Great.